Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. As you advance in the spiritual life, do you still look back to your sin-conscious living before God? Or have you begun to learn to live by Christ in you, and furthermore, through His grace that flows within you? In this message, I want to bring to your attention three things that you can cultivate three things that you can be mindful of as you grow in Christ consciousness, as you grow in grace consciousness. Number one, it's the fact that this new life in Christ is a supernatural life, and you need to learn to set your mind on the things which are above. Number two, this new life in Christ and in grace needs to be a life of submission you need to learn to perpetually receive from Christ and from grace to become the very person He intended you to be. And lastly, you must learn to live and enjoy your sonship in God. Not to live as an orphan, not to live as a stranger, but to live in the house of God and thoroughly, fully maximize the sonship God has bestowed upon you. Those are the three items I want to address in this message. The fact that in the new creation, in the Christ consciousness, you are now in a supernatural life. So learn what that means. You are in a life of submission. Learn what that means. And you are in a life of sonship. Explore it and receive all that God has for you in the sonship. Beloved, it is not God's intention to have us wallow in the muck and mire of the pig pens of our sin consciousness. We've been brought home. We've been washed. We've been robed. We've been sandaled. We've been ringed to come into the house of God and to live in a new consciousness. If you want to go on in the spiritual life, if you really want to come into the rhythm of God's New Testament economy, and more especially if you do want to live the way the Apostle Paul and the other apostles lived, then it necessitates you stewarding well the Christ consciousness, the life consciousness, the redeemed consciousness, the pure consciousness of God within you. It's possible to live a vibrant, dynamic, overcoming Christian life and it has a lot to do with where you set your mind. Is it ongoingly in Egypt, in sin, or is it in the promised land, in Jesus Christ, our Lord?
the consciousness within. Who is living, sin or Christ? In chapter 5 of Romans, I live in Adam. In chapter 6, I live in the last Adam. In Romans 7, I live in self and in the law. In Romans 8, I live in the spirit. Look here to point number two on your notes. Unless a Christian is brought out of the power of his self-induced spirituality, he will never experience the realities of God's economy. He will repeatedly fail and retain his spiritual infancy. And I think it's good that we preachers preach on sin. And I think we've done a good job in American evangelicalism to preach uh, hell and brimstone, right? Turn or burn. And a lot of us have um, become conscious of sin, our depravity, our weaknesses, our need of a Messiah, a Savior, a physician. But beloved, now that we are saved, we also need people now to teach us. Not only God, but the body of Christ needs to teach me, who am I in the Lord? So that my consciousness begins to be trained according to that new creation reality. If you are saved, but you're still predominantly in the sin consciousness mindset, you're going to stay an infant in Christ. Does it make sense? You're not going to experience the richness that Christ has for you unless you can take on the mind of Christ and the consciousness of the new creation realities. An English man by the name of Major Ian W. Thomas has written quite a few books on this issue of Christ as your life. And we have a few of his books down in the library. I encourage you to take your valuable pocket money and buy the literature down in the library. What a relief it must be for you to discover that in all of your attempts to harness the flesh in the service of Jesus Christ, and all your painful endeavors to introduce it to godly principles of life and conduct, that God has never expected anything of you but the hopeless failure that you have been. You've been trying to do the impossible. It is not a question of improving or of being reformed, but it's a substitution receiving a God-given life, a life for which we have nothing to offer God in exchange. You see, Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but it is sin. And so sin was a force within me to, to, to live out sin. Then Paul comes in Galatians, he says, it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ. Christ is a force, a dynamic, a resurrection life, an eternal life in me to cause me to live the Christian life. I have to learn to mind that life and no longer the life of the flesh doing good because I'm always going to fail in my doing good attempt with God. So the issue is, that's an issue of substitution. Sin substituted Adam. But now the Savior substitute me. 
So initially sin was predominant within me, no longer I but sin. But now what is salvation? No longer I but? Have you noticed? Either way, it's no longer... It's wonderful. You've been substituted initially with sin. Now you're substituted with Christ in you. So I don't have to do too, too much to live the spiritual life. But um, I have to abide. I have to stay engaged. And let's look at a couple of things. How do I then live the spiritual life? How do I live Christ in me? How do I live by Christ? How does my spirit touch Him and contain Him and process Him? And then how do I live this out? I have uh, three thoughts for you here. But first, a little saying from Legacy. Believers receive the Lord's life. We call that salvation. Believers receive the Lord's life. But a disciple learn to live by the Lord's life. Welcome to Legacy School of... Excuse me, discipleship, young lady. Legacy School. What are we doing here? We're trying to learn to live by the indwelling Lord, by Christ's life. So, beloved, this is Christian living, is to mind the indwelling Lord and to mind the Holy Spirit and to mind righteousness and to mind the fruit of the Spirit and to mind the things of God versus the things of self. So this is what we're trying to do as disciples, no longer just receive life, but live by that life. So first of all, I want you to know that to live by Christ is to live in the reality of the supernatural. It's to live in the reality of the supernatural. A disciple has received a supernatural life into him, but now he is trying and learning and growing and training to live by a supernatural influx and infusion. No longer I, but Christ. That's a supernatural life. And beloved, if I can just break down this word, and, and this goes without saying, there's two words in here, super and the word natural. And super simply means it supersedes the natural. It's above the natural. It's beyond the natural. So, beloved, who fuels your Christian life? Is it the natural or something, let's say someone beyond the natural? By supernatural, I don't imply we levitate and there's always a glowing halo about me and I sort of just glow with gold. And Supernatural does not mean that. It simply means as a disciple, I'm learning to live by Christ in me. I'm learning to live by a reality, a dynamic, an infusion that is beyond the natural. Can you all follow with me? It's a supernatural life. And if it has fireworks, and if it has uh, levitation, amen. But it could look very, very normal. And I want to reference Christ again for you. 
Christ was a normal common man, but he lived by an above infusion. He lived by a superseding infusion from God. Not the natural culture or natural rabbinic teaching. He lived by the Father. You and I, we live by Christ. It's a supernatural life. I want you to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 6. I love verses 56 and verse 57. Put your eyes carefully there in your biblical text, and um, I pray these verses impress deep into your being uh, some revelation. In verse 56, Jesus says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, that person abides in me and I abide in him. Listen carefully. You can almost in a way say that verses 56 is stage one of the Christian life. It's the beginning, if you will, of the Christian life. When you believe that Christ died, that His blood is the forgiving blood of the new covenant. It's almost as though step one, and I don't like to teach stages and steps, or point one or point two so much, but if I may go there, to just help clarify verse 56, I want to say verse 56 is in a way step one, stage one of the Christian life. I believe in Christ and I receive His life. I live in Him and He lives in me. And all of us have had stage one, if you will, of the Christian journey. But look at verse 57. Tongue in cheek, I call it stage two of the Christian life. And notice now how Jesus says it. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father. Notice Christ is under the Father's influence. It's no longer Christ who lived, but it's the Father who lives in Christ. He says, I live by my Father. I live because of my Father. That makes the Father the source. Christ is just the recipient. The Father flows into Christ. It's a supernatural influx into this man, Jesus Christ. And he learned to live by his Father. Is everybody with me? Now look how he says it about you and I. He says, even so, the person who eats me, that's the person who abides in Christ, believes in Christ, the person who's chewed Christ through faith and receptivity. He says, He shall live because of me. That person shall live by me as I live because of my Father, by my Father. You will have to learn to live by me, because of me. Beloved, that is the stage you and I are currently in. We've already come to stage one where we've believed into the Lord. Now we're learning to live by this Lord. And let me hasten to say, learning to live by Christ is learning to live a supernatural lifestyle. Yes, I've got two feet very much rooted on this earth. 
but the fountain of God himself is my supply and my source. And that's why I engage my spirit. And I learn to receive from God and live by God. No longer I, but Christ who lives with in me. It's a supernatural life. I also want you now to turn to chapter 20. Chapter 20 of John's Gospel. And we're going to pick it up in verse 19. John chapter 20. It's the day of resurrection. It's a Sunday, the first day of the week. And the Lord was resurrected that morning or discovered to be resurrected that morning. And when we come to verse 19, it's beginning to be the end of the day of that Sunday. And something really supernatural is about to occur. Verse 19, when therefore it was evening on that day, and it was the first day of the week, and while the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood in their midst and he said to them, Peace be to you. Beloved, look up here. Notice the condition in which they are found. They are hiding, secluded, retreated, in obscurity. They're afraid. This is their experience. This is their identity. In a way, they're slaves. In a way, they're hidden. In a way, they are timid. They're, they're afraid. This is exactly the scene in the Garden of Eden replayed 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem. In the Garden of Eden, the man and the woman sinned against God. They transgressed against God. Immediately, they run from God. They hide from God. Why? They are afraid. Sin, they're living by sin. Sin is their identity. And so what does sin do? It makes us run. It makes us afraid. It makes us ashamed. It makes us guilty. We're inferior. And what did Adam and Eve do? By sin, they covered up with fig leaves. This is sin in me. Here, they're hiding. This is the Garden of Eden all over again. In the Garden of Eden, the father comes and he says, Adam, where are you? And God comes and finds that man and woman in their broken, hurting, confused, fearful, timid, ashamed, afraid condition. And the father reaches out to Adam and his wife. Here, Christ comes and he finds his hurting, wounded people. And the first thing that Christ speaks to this motley crew of fearful, timid disciples is he says to them, Peace be to you. Shalom in Hebrew. The first interaction that a resurrected Lord had with sinners, hello, was one of peace. Not, why are you hiding? Why are you afraid? Haven't I taught you playing the blame game and shame on you, you sinner you. But when he comes, the father there in the Garden of Eden, he could have crushed Adam and Eve if he wanted to. Christ could have shamed his disciples if he wanted to. And he declares there to them, just like the Father in a way declared to Adam and Eve long ago, I'm at peace with you. 
I'm okay with you. And he says, be at peace, be at peace. I'm not here to condemn, to crush, to cripple. Really, he was there to fill them. Keep reading here. The Lord speaks to them and he says, peace be to you. In verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. How can God be at peace with these sinners, these fearful, timid disciples? He can be at peace with them because of the work of the cross. Because of his death and his paying the price, he can be at peace with them. So that peace that he extends to them is on the platform of the cross. Amen. So he says, look at my hands. Look at my side. And notice the reaction in verse 20. The disciples, they rejoiced when they see the Lord. Beloved, this should be the reaction when a crucified Lord shows up in your life and says to you, no more work is done. No more earning. No more striving. I'm at peace with you. I died for you. Our reaction should be, yay, hallelujah, glory. So they rejoice. Joy, exuberance. Look at verse 21. Jesus again says to them, Peace be to you. Peace be unto you. Shalom. And it's like the second time he says, Peace be to you. And it's as though peace is, is, is the, the bookends of redemption. God is not mad. Because of Christ. And because of Christ, God is not mad. God is a-okay with us. And there's a principle within the Jewish culture that by the mouth of two or three testimonies, a truth is established. And here, for a second time, Christ says, Peace be to you. He's already said it, but now He really means it. And it solidifies the heart of God towards sinners, fearful, timid disciples. Because of the cross... God is doubly, solidly at peace with us. But beloved, you now have to notice what's happening here. The second time Christ says peace to you, He gives them a commission. Look at it in verse 21. He says, As the Father sent me, I want to send you. Can you read into those words? He's commissioning them. Amen? The Father commissioned Christ and said, Son, it's time to go to earth. And the Son said, Okay. Now the Son commissions this fearful, motley crew. And He says, I want to use you. I want to send you. It's the same with Adam and Eve there in the garden. They had the image of God. They had the calling of God. They had the authority of God. They were supposed to fill this earth and subdue it and go. This is exactly the same thing happening here. Go, my disciples. I want to send you. But beloved, here is the crucial revelation in verse 22. Notice, when he had said this, he breathed into them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. There was a mandate to live this Christian life now, to go for God. But 
not without Him being the life inside of them. No longer I who go, no longer I who live, but they receive the indwelling breath. And I suspect Jesus had the disciples come forward, and I suspect He takes them by the head, who knows, or maybe He just stood there and He just went and breathed into them the breath of life, the breath of resurrection life, His own being into them. This is exactly what happened in Genesis, if, if not put two and two together. The man was supposed to be a living entity, but God breathed into that man and he became a living soul. Beloved, here is the start of the new creation. The new man on earth, the new disciple, the new follower, he will no longer live by hiding and by an indwelling sin. He will live by an indwelling spirit that is breathed into him. No longer I who go, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with in me. Amen. It's a supernatural thing. When Christ breathes the Holy Spirit, you better believe it's supernatural. And by the way, if you tap into the supernatural indwelling life of God, you cannot get bored with God. You cannot get burned out. You stay peppy. And there's rejoicing. It's part of the spiritual life. The next point on your notes is if you want to live this Christ-filled life, Christ in me, the hope of glory, then you have to live in the reality of submission. You have to be sub His mission. When Christ breathed into His disciples, it was a supernatural breath, the very breath of God into them. But beloved, on the other hand, they had to submit to that breath. That is, they had to receive that breath. They had to be sub under His mission. His mission was to supply them, to send them. And they had to submit to it, be under that, that is, receive. By the way, that's exactly what the word submission means. When it says that a woman, ladies, there's a lot of women in here, you may want to listen up. <laughs> when it says a woman should submit to a man, as a man submits to Christ, I don't think our culture has the foggiest notion as to what that really simply means. It's not as complex as we make it, men have taken advantage of the word submission. In fact, ladies, um, with all honesty, if I may, if a man dangles that word submission in front of you, um, you're in for trouble. 
because probably that man has a skewed definition of submission. Whenever a man plays that card with, with you ladies, before or after marriage, men in their dominance and their ego will take advantage of that word to put a woman in her place, uh, even to abuse and beat a woman. There's many, many a man that have beaten the woman because of this simple word called submission. So, I don't have to tell you stories. I'm sure you've heard them yourself. What does submission mean? It means to be sub-mission. Eve was to be submissive to her husband. That is, she had to partner with his mission. When it says a man should submit to Christ, do you think Christ is bullying me? Do you think Christ is dominating over me in a in a autocratic, totalitarian way? Do you think I'm just a doormat for Christ? No. When a man is supposed to take Christ as the head and be submissive to Christ, that is, I need to receive his mission. I need to partner with his mission. When I do not follow in the mission of my Lord, I'm not submissive. Is everybody with me? This is what God wants from a man, is to join God's economy. And what does God from, want from a woman? He wants the woman to partner up with the man and join in the mission of God. You're just as much under God's mission as a man is under God's mission. But God has said it in the household that the man represents that nucleus. The man is the head of the house. That doesn't mean he's the boss. Head means representative, ladies. The man represents the household. And the man is supposed to take God's mission, God's economy, God's will, God's kingdom. And the woman is supposed to take the man's mission, which is God's mission. So when a woman submits to a man, she submits to God. The word submission literally means to be along on mission. It doesn't mean they have to have the same career. A woman can do this career, a man can do that career. But a woman needs to join the spiritual mission of the man as the man joins the spiritual mission of God. And one last thing, the word submission does not mean to be a doormat or to be beaten or to have no voice, no will, no say. Submission means to receive. I'm under that mission. And that's the mandate of a woman, to receive from the man. What's the mandate on a man? He may say, oh, I love you, Jesus, amen. But if a man cannot receive from God, he is not submissive to God. And this is an aspect of the spiritual life. You will have to learn to receive from your Lord. And how do you receive? In your heart in your spirit. He'll tug you. He'll woo you. God will prompt you go left. God will prompt you go right. You just have to pay attention to your inner heart. That is your inner spirit, your inner man. Like a woman is wooed by a man and her heart is moved. Her person is moved. It's the same. A woman has to receive a man's chase, a man's affection. A man has to receive God's chase, God's affection. So even as you have these feelings and promptings in the natural, it's exactly that way in the spiritual. Your spiritual man has feeling, intuition. There's a sense in your spirit man. 
And you have to be under the mission of God. If God says yes, you say yes. If God says no, you say no. If God says stop or go or come or die, to be submissive is to live by Christ. If you're submissive to sin and go along with the mission of sin, then yeah, the fruit of it is death. But if you're submissive to God, on mission with God, the fruit of it is life. Beloved, Romans 12 speaks about how we can be regulated by God and we should not be regulated by the world. That simply means we are submissive to God with His mission. In Romans 8 verse 13 it says, For if you live according to the flesh, if you're submissive to the flesh and you live by the influx of the flesh, you're going to die. You'll experience death. But if by the Spirit, if by Christ in you, the breath in you, the divine supernatural in you, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is Christ in you, the Spirit in you. You have to learn to be submissive and to receive from your Lord. We must not only learn to live the supernatural Christian life and the submissive Christian life, but lastly, you have to live now in the reality of sonship. You have to live in this new identity and say amen to the new identity and mind the new identity, even study the new identity. Down in the bookstores, down in the bookstore, I have a book for you by uh, Neil Anderson on who I am in Christ. And it's a fantastic little book. There's many variations of this same thought as to who am I in the new creation. Beloved, you've got to study these things out, even memorize these things, even pray into these things, that you take the mind of the new creation reality of sonship. A spiritual man endlessly, ceaselessly reject any identity incongruent with his new nature in Christ. He says yes to sonship and no to slavery. And whatever the, the word teaches, he says amen, even without understanding. Amen, amen, amen. And there is a threefold strand how to live by Christ. Number one, it is a supernatural life. Number two, be submissive to it in the promptings and the truths. And number three, say amen and yes to the realities of that sonship. If God calls you forgiven, then begin to call yourself forgiven. If God says peace, then begin to just believe. I'm at peace with God. If God says accepted and beloved, and if God says righteous and just, then just begin to say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I am justified. I am accepted. Don't understand it. Don't fight and fuss about it. Just begin to live in the sonship. If God says, you are allowed to sit at the table with your robe and your ring and your sandal and eat the fatted calf, then beloved, 
today eat the fatted calf. Rejoice. Your name's been written down in the Lamb's book of life. Live in the reality of sonship. Here's what we do. So many of us have come out of the pig pen. We have been washed. We've been clothed. Now we're living in the house. And this is what the son basically said to his father. I'll just be your slave. As long as I'm close, I'll just be your slave. And the father said, no. You're my son. And when he puts the ring on him, that's to re-identify him with sonship and authority and dignity and honor. And the son is like, I'm just so not worthy. I'm just so not worthy. And the father's like, get lost with that thought. This is my son. Come into the house. And if you remember the parable, there was another brother. You remember the other brother? Who lived in the house, but never enjoyed the, the dignity, honor, and position of sonship. And he comes to the father and he says, You've never prepared a table for me. You've never slaughtered a fatted calf. And the father says, What? You're my son. It's a given that all this is yours. All you've got to do, son, is partake of it. Do you want to party? Then let's party. So that son is living in the house. But he is not supplied by the house. He doesn't live by the riches of his father. And he's emaciated and he can't celebrate. And the father's like, dude, you can celebrate any day. So we see a son then that repents, come home. But you see a son that is a goody tissue, lives in the house, but with a poverty mentality, a slave mentality. And this is what happened to the Israelites. They were free from Egypt, set miraculously, supernaturally free. They are under the supply of God, and yet they will not enjoy the riches of God. They will not take the sonship. They call themselves grasshoppers. You remember that? They said, we can't go into the good land. We're just grasshoppers. We're useless. We're nothing. That is a sin consciousness, a self-consciousness. And Christ has come to live in you to steward and cultivate a brand new way of consciousness. We all start out as sinners. But this whole, whole idea that I'm still just a big old sinner, I often call myself just a good old sinner, but I say it tongue in cheek. I know in me dwells nothing good, and I, I think you know that too about yourself. But I don't fixate on my pitiful, sinful condition. I'm over it. I'm a son in the house. And in the house, I'm going to make mistakes. In the house, I'm going to trip up and slip up. and um, I don't want to, but beloved, in the house, I never lose the ring. I stay in the sonship. So yeah, Christ in me or sin in me. Which is the one that you're submissive to on mission with? Either way, it's no longer I who live. Amen.